Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in the field of national security, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has served in a wide range of roles within the Pentagon, the National Security Council, and the U.S. Senate, including serving as an acting deputy assistant secretary of defense for African affairs in the Pentagon. She's also backpacked on her own in Asia for three months. She traveled to 72 countries and she's lived on four continents. But before I introduce you to Michelle Lenahan, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter and it comes out bright and early on Monday mornings and it has unique firsthand insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab a mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michelle Lenahan, a senior advisor on policy management and operations to the Policy Chief of Operations at the U.S. Pentagon, where she's worked in various capacities since 2007. Most recently, Michelle was the Principal Director in the Office of African Affairs, where she managed a team of 15 to 18 people. Prior to that role, Michelle was the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for African Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy. In that capacity, Michelle advised DOD leadership and represented the department on policy matters pertaining to Africa. Additionally, since 2017, Michelle has served as a U.S. Navy Reserve Officer. Michelle has also represented the Department of Defense within the National Security Council staff as a Director of African Affairs and in the office of Senator Dick Durbin on Capitol Hill where she worked as a legislative fellow and within the office of the chief of naval operations and the office of the vice chairman of the joint chiefs of staff as a presidential management fellow. In fact, we talk about all the different kinds of fellowships that you can apply for in our Espresso Shots interview. So please check out the show notes for this episode to see if Michelle's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Prior to going into government service, Michelle co-founded the first dialysis center in Guyana, a country 
located in the northern region of South America. She also spent several years as a journalist, working as an associate producer and a senior production assistant for ABC News. And lastly, she spent a year as a teacher and an intern at the American International School in Johannesburg, South Africa. Michelle, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, it is such an honor to get to talk to you. And as someone who has spent so many years of your life traveling on the African continent and certainly focusing on the African continent, does that make you a coffee drinker, a tea drinker? Or neither? I am a tea drinker, for sure. Or neither. I tend to be naturally caffeinated. <laughs> but uh, I certainly have my tea from time to time. Oh, and my gosh. Rooibos tea from South Africa. Oh, yes. Love Rooibos. And if you're not familiar with it, it's R-O-O-I-B-O-S. And it kind of tastes as if it were a dark tea a dark caffeinated tea, like an English breakfast or one of those, but it isn't. There's no caffeine in it. Right. And it definitely has a heavier texture or feel. And rooibos is red, so it's actually red tea. Yes. There you go. Love it. And I also enjoyed it when I was in South Africa and certainly, and I brought back like a big kind of rooibos tea bulk in bulk, one of those (laughs) bags. And before we get into the interview itself, I want our listeners to be aware of the fact that Michelle is joining us today in her own capacity and not in her professional capacity as an employee of the Department of Defense. I think you had a far more eloquent way of saying that, Michelle. Uh, So I'm here in my personal, not my official capacity. There you go. And before we start unpacking all of the amazing things you've done in your professional capacity. I am curious, Michelle, when you look in the rearview mirror, looking back on all the different things you've done since you graduated, certainly from the University of Pennsylvania, does it make sense to you that you've moved from teaching in South Africa into journalism and then to starting a dialysis center in Guyana and and then finally working on national security issues as a civilian in the Department of Defense? Absolutely. I would say the common thread through all of those roles has been service and trying to do my best to help others in whichever capacity it is. So whether it was in teaching, which also allowed me to satisfy this exploration desire or desire to learn. The dialysis center was a a bit of an anomaly, but at its heart, it was just trying to bring a a needed service to people who didn't have it. And then also, again, learning and exploring a a new culture and furthering my understanding there. News, I really think news at its best is a a public service. I mean, it's providing people with information that they need to know in order to make decisions and also keep our, our government accountable. And then, of course, with the national security where I've been for the past 15 years, there's a consistent thread there of service and then international engagement, as well as ultimately trying to contribute to the greater good. And was any of this planned out? Did you know that you were <laughs> going to move from teaching into journalism and just starting a dialysis center and then get into national security? No, I would say it was really a matter of listening to my heart and following what it is that I knew I needed to do at the time. And then 
each of them, I would say, was linked to another or built upon another. But it, from the outside perspective, it may not look like the most linear of careers, but certainly it's, it's been the one that's been appropriate for me. Yeah, I would say it's not linear at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not at all, except maybe once you got into government service, right. then I think there, there's certainly a theme for sure. But I agree with you. And I'm, I'm saying this, it, it seems obvious for us to have this conversation because we have more miles on our odometer than our young listeners do. But I'm really trying to kind of hit this over the head from the outset, because I do think for some of our young listeners, they may think that we've planned our careers out. And what I hope they take away, not just from this discussion, Michelle, but from pretty much all the discussions that I have on Time for Coffee, is that so long as you listen to your heart, so long as you follow your interests, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to maybe have certain regrets, maybe in some of the moves that you make, but it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's growth in, in every role that you that you take on. And then I'd also say, take a chance, be bold and go for it. Because I found that when I've done that, those are the most rewarding experiences that have followed. Love it. I'm double high-fiving you across the <laughs> airwaves here, girlfriend. Okay. So before we get into what you are actually doing now in your current job, could you give our listeners a sort of meta view, a 10,000 foot perspective of what it's like working in a bureaucratic maze like the Department of Defense, which is also known as the Pentagon. I will probably be using those terms interchangeably. Just give us a rough idea, Michelle. How many different departments and offices and, and all of that are there that fall under DOD's purview? Oh, I mean, it's huge. You can't understate it. So the Pentagon itself in pre-COVID times would hold almost over 20,000 people worked in that building on a daily basis. So to put that in perspective, that's the size of the town that I grew up in. And that's one component of the larger DOD enterprise. So you have different departments and agencies within DOD that are spread across the country and then also globally. So it's a massive, massive enterprise. But it's also structured and there are processes in place and there's, I mean, it's a very ordered institution and that's as a result to maintain the ability to get things done and also to maintain various transitions that occur. So it's, it's enormous, but there's a reason for it. For sure. And you have spent many years of your time within the Pentagon, broad brush strokes, working within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, also known by the acronym OSD. And the current Secretary of Defense at this moment is Dr. Mark Esper. Where does OSD fit into this picture? So, and thank you for, for spelling out what OSD is. Please catch me if I speak in acronyms, because that's certainly a DOD failing. We have our own language of acronyms. So Office of Secretary of Defense policy is a component within the larger Office of the Secretary of Defense, which is in essence his support staff, which is primarily a civilian organization. And so our policy is led by an undersecretary. And there are a few undersecretaries across the OSD enterprise that are there designed to support the secretary. On the flip side, you also have the joint staff, 
which is in essence the staff designed to support the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So there you have your civilian and your military two elements. And within the U.S. system, we have civilian control over the military. So the secretary is, is the top person within the department. And so our role within OSD policy is first and foremost to advise and support the secretary and the leadership in between in order that they are they're prepared to make decisions or that they're best apprised of events and issues that are ongoing, and then also maintain those relationships within a policy perspective in order to basically tee him up for decisions that he would need to make, but then also to represent him or at some point perhaps or her in different forums. So to support him so that he can engage in, whether it's with Congress or foreign counterparts or within the interagency at the White House, meetings with the president and so forth, we're in essence as staff to support and advise him on, on certain issues, both functional and regional. But then we also represent him within those capacities internationally in the interagency and then also within public forums. Yes. You mentioned functional versus regional. Can you tease that out? Sure. So within our policy organization, we're broken out structurally into various assistant secretariats. And those assistant secretariats cover different issue sets. So they may be regional, such as international security affairs, which is Africa, Latin America, or not Africa, Western Hemisphere Affairs, Europe, Middle East. And then you have Indo-Pacific Affairs, which is going to be your Pacific area as well as the Indian Ocean area. So those are regional offices. And then you also have functional offices. So functional office would cover special operations, low intensity conflict, or it would cover space, cyber, carrying weapons of mass destruction, support to homeland defense, or strategy, security cooperation plans. Great. So you heard Michelle mention that the person who is in charge of the Pentagon is always a civilian. And even when that civilian was also in the military, and the most recent example of that was Secretary, now former Secretary, Jim Mattis, who was a General Mattis. I would love now to pivot into what you are doing in your current role. Your title is Senior Advisor, Policy Management and Operations in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. In this role, you advise... The Policy Chief of Operations. Policy Chief of Operations. Andrea, can I just... One clarifier. Just a note, when you said that Mattis was in the military as well, he wasn't concurrently, right? So he had retired from the military and then he actually had to get a waiver and then he came back in as a civilian. Yes. I'm so glad you underscored that point. So he was known as Secretary Mattis because he had retired from the military in order to take on that civilian leadership role. Or he had retired and then he was, he was a civilian and then he was asked, but he didn't, there was a gap. He didn't do one and he didn't retire from one in order to take on the other. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much. So your current title, Michelle, is Senior Advisor Policy Management and Operations in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And in this role, you advise the Policy Chief of Operations on Special Projects. Could you flesh that out a little bit and just give us a sense, Michelle, of what you do in your job? 
Sure. So the, the chief of operations is in charge of, in essence, making sure that the organization is, is functioning. So currently I'm working on primarily some personnel related strategic tasks or assignments. So whether that's trying to find additional resources or manpower for new entities that we're standing up or areas that have gaps that we need to fill, those are some some elements that have worked. And then I'll just perhaps draw back as far as more of a general perspective on, on policy and some of the functions as far as what people there do. So I, a typical day, in, as I mentioned before, that our primary role within OSD policy is to advise and support the secretary and then also to advance DOD objectives in support of our national security interests. So we are advocating for DOD within the interagency, but also just making sure that perspectives and ideas are represented when making significant decisions. So on a typical day, most people in policy are in the morning reading, so reading intelligence or news and other sources in order to ensure that they are smart on their issues and that they're tracking and up to date on any any movements. And then another major component would be working with interagency counterparts. So you're constantly working with others within the USG since the issues that we work on are so large and the organizations that we work in are so vast. There really is no going it alone. You really have to work collectively in order to get things done. So within an organization as large as DOD, there are major components that you have to work and coordinate with within DOD, but then you're also working with your interagency counterparts. So especially for someone like me who's primarily focused on regional issues, State Department is going to have an interest in in those decisions that we make or activities that are ongoing or policies that we're shaping or strategies that we're trying to affect. You're also trying to tee up things for leadership approval. So you're working on different memos or requirements or action requests, as well as uh, influencing resourcing decisions. So the Pentagon some tend to think of it as a, the house of budget because that's really where a lot of the resource decisions are made. So you're trying to influence those or, or advise on those. Another main component is engaging with foreign counterparts, especially for a regional office. So that's a matter of exchanging ideas, understanding their perspective or what their requirements or their needs, finding areas for cooperation, and then also just trying to determine where those shared interests are and then advancing activities in order to achieve your objectives. And then it's also a lot of responding. So because the world is dynamic, because things are constantly changing and you need to keep up with things, you're also in response to activities that are happening or events that are occurring around the world um, and trying to react to them and then determine what your position or any decisions that might be required associated with them. So how has the coronavirus changed some of the functions of your job? I know that you are working remotely. I don't know if you are able to travel or meet with foreign dignitaries or or any of those other things that you used to do yeah. before COVID. Well, actually, in my role right now as supporting the CEO, I'm actually working in support of the COVID task force. So I am directly impacted by what's happening uh, in COVID as far as trying to, to work on some some manning and some staffing there. But certainly initially travel was scaled back, but there has been some resumption of travel. The secretary has had international engagements uh, throughout COVID. So so that is still occurring, but certainly not in the same level or volume as it was in normal times. Yeah. Michelle, as I listened to you kind of rattle off all of the things that you have to juggle in your job, I could not help but think this is a woman who knows how to manage her time 
Uh How do you do that? And what advice can you give our listeners for how they can prioritize various action items that they have and just kind of juggle a million things that are coming at you in a job like yours? Oh, thank you. I definitely think time management is an ongoing (laughs) art to be perfected. But I would say one organization. So as you noted, the prioritization, but being organized in the sense of knowing what are your priorities, what needs to get done, what's the time frame in which they have to get done, tracking so that you understand end dates, then working back what needs to occur in order to get to that final decision point or final submission date. I constantly have lists. Every day I'll create a new list just to make sure that I'm I'm tracking with my priorities and then keeping focused on what needs to get done in short, medium and long term. And I also think it it helps to have somewhat of a routine or a schedule as best as you can. And so every morning, Intel would be the first thing. And so knock that out, um, block off that time. So trying to put as much rigor as you can into your own schedule or discipline, recognizing that obviously things are going to throw that out of whack depending on what events might occur, but organization, prioritization, and then some degree of structure. Okay, fair enough. We are not going to get into the many different hats that you've worn over the last 15 years since you started working in national security, but I do think it would be useful. As I said in the introduction, you've you've worked a lot of regional issues, especially with regards to the African continent. And you've had to do different things in different roles. Most recently, you were in a very senior position as the acting deputy assistant secretary of defense of African affairs. And you led a team of 15 to 18 people to advance the Department of Defense's strategic interests in Africa. You've also had to testify before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You have worked as a chief of staff to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Defense and Global Security. That's quite a mouthful. And in that role, you advised and represented senior leadership on management, personnel, and substantive issues related to cyber, countering weapons of mass destruction, space, and homeland defense portfolios. I'm I'm chuckling because I'm intimidated just reading that, Michelle. Can you help our young listeners appreciate how you prepared for these different roles and how you would drink from the fire hose without drowning? Well, one, I think having intellectual curiosity is always helpful because there's just a natural appetite to learn and really dig in and, and understand the issues in a quick amount of time, which is required, depending on what the role and the function is and and what's happening at the time. And then also, I would just say a real work ethic. So wanting to dig in and spend the time, you have to really put in the time in order to understand issues and develop relationships so that you can get a full picture and understand sometimes the fast way to get information versus a slower route to do it. So also really, I think, pinpointing what it is that you need to know and then being sharp on that. So it's a matter of you know, working smart and hard, I would say. Okay. So could you maybe give us an example, just a random example of how you would step into 
any of the big roles that you've had in which the learning curve is super steep without psyching yourself out? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you're in it, so you got to make it work. I guess <laughs> that's part of it too, right? So um, I, I think it's probably just an interest and a desire, a desire to do right by the people who put you there, a desire to do right by the people who you're serving, who are working with and, and for you. And so, you know, there's a task at hand and you've got to get it done. So I don't think there's time to get psyched out mm. or, or the, the, the luxury of getting psyched out. I think you just have to do it. I've, I've been consistently heartened, and I really mean this. To hear from some super accomplished men and women that I've interviewed on Time for Coffee who have clearly crushed every position they've had and big positions like those you've had. To hear from them that, yeah, it's intimidating if you let yourself really kind of sit there, but you've got a job to do. So you just do it. You read in your free time. You read subject matter books. (laughs) You read, you're not reading like maybe that amazing work of fiction that where you can escape, but you're reading that volume on the Congo or whatever the case may be in your free time because you have a job to do and you need to kind of get there, get skill up as quickly as possible or just get read in as quickly as possible. Does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, but you know, I really underscore, Andrew, that it's about the team. And so in any of these positions, you're there based on the people that you serve and the people who are, are serving with you. And so they often, I mean, they're the ones who are the subject matter experts. They're the ones who are taking in into the details or the ones who are, are helping you and teeing you up and getting you smart, uh, whether that's within the intelligence organization, the policy organization, I mean, first and foremost, your team, direct team that you're working for, and then all the others who are there. And again, I think that gets back to that that service orientation of people who work in government is that they want to serve the mission. And, and by serving the mission, everybody helps everybody else out and, and gets them to where they need to go. So it's it's really an effort in which everybody is supported by everyone else. So that's really the trick of, of how you get there. So it's knowing who to call on to get the information you need. Yeah. And then also drawing upon the support of your team. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, you're only as good as your team, to be honest, I would say. So you need, you need that collaboration, that support, that teamwork. You're all in it together, regardless of whether you're the leader or if you're the, the staff. I mean, you're all charging towards the same direction and, and each of you is making the other better. Before we flash back to when you were in college, Michelle, I thought it might be a good moment for us to press pause and speak to something that I know is really important to you. And that is what it has been like often being the only female, the only woman in the room. Can you share that with our young listeners? Sure. I think it's really important that there is representation. And I'm, I'm proud that I've been a woman in the room and creating some diversity of perspective or thought or just changing perhaps that dynamic that you get when people are of different composition or makeup or perspective and so forth. And so I, I do think it's really important that we have greater diversity in all of our rooms, whether that's gender or race. 
or, you know, socioeconomic background or perspective, that's what makes teams stronger is when you're thinking from a more diverse background or, or foundation. And that's where you can get more creative and, and really have stronger ideas come forward. So I've been, I've been really fortunate to be in those positions. I really believe strongly in women, peace and security and that we need to elevate women and create greater gender parity across the security spectrum. I certainly advocate for that and believe in that in the countries that I advise on, but then also within this country, I think it's really important that we that we change that dynamic and, and stop repeating the cycles that we've done in the past. So I, I firmly believe in the need for greater diversification. You were saying in our Espresso Shots interview, and please check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped, that one of the life experiences that you've had that you think really helped tee you up for these types of circumstances where you would be the only or one of the only women in the room has been your experience playing Division One soccer. Yeah, and I would actually trace it back to playing third grade soccer. <laughs> so I think it was even, I think ultimately playing in college was, you know, it's the apex, but it was really the, the skills and the development and the formation that occurred at a very young age, going into an area that was new for me, that I wasn't good at, that I had to learn how to do it. That at the time was actually pretty scary and intimidating, especially for a shy kid. But then I was able to develop and excel. And then ultimately that took me to playing on regional teams and then state teams where oftentimes I was the only person from my town on those teams. And so I really had to develop those skills to build rapport, to create relationships, to Actually, oftentimes my parents, I'm the youngest of nine kids. And so my parents put, I would say, a good degree of responsibility on me at a young age to, to sort it out. So you know, I had to schedule my own rides to games or figure out where people lived in different towns and get directions and make sure that I was able to get there. And so through soccer, I definitely developed really core critical life skills, but then also I'd say leadership skills. So that the confidence that you get from winning a state championship or working with your team and putting in the hours and slogging it out and training and then actually reaping the rewards on the field or, you know, those last five minutes of a game when you are completely gassed out and yet you're a defender and you know any one slip can result in a, a goal against your team and that you've got to grind it out. I certainly think that those scenarios are replicated within the workplace, you know, when you have to get something in on a deadline, you have to support the secretary, despite the fact that you're exhausted and, and it needs to get done. So I really think that it's, it's, for me has been critical in my formation. I've definitely benefited from the ability to play sport. I think also having that sense of camaraderie, that sense of community with women, and then also just on a larger front. And then also playing with boys, you know, I can tell a story from when I was in Spain in southern Spain and we were on the beach and, and the boys were playing soccer and so I just jumped in in order to play with them and they were surprised that I could play one and then two I said no I play I play football which is how you say it in, in Spanish and they said oh you must play American football there's no way you could play soccer you know that's that's such a, a male sport and so the ability to actually interact with them to be on par with them to be a peer with them playing and then also to beat some of them certainly is is a way that I think helps build confidence or puts you on a literally level playing field in the field. But then also you can take those skills and those experiences into the professional arena. And thus perhaps you know, may not be as intimidated being the only female in a room, having been the only female on a field. Oh, 
What a great story, Michelle. So what position did you play? Were you a defender? I was a defender, although I initially was midfield. I think, you know, over the course of that long of a playing career, or not that long. I mean, I make it sound like I'm playing from a young age through. I, I pretty much played every position, including goalie. So, you know, actually, maybe this is another story. Is, as you say, how do you throw yourself into a role and just get yourself up to speed? I mean, at one point, actually in college, our goalies were hurt. And so we were down and I just, we needed a goalie. And I just threw my name out to volunteer, even though I hadn't played since I would say fifth grade or maybe fourth <laughs> grade. So, um, you know, I think sometimes you just go for it. So I've pretty much played everything, but for the most part, I've been a defender. And I am so glad that you brought up your birth order out of nine yes. kids. Holy yes. cow. That's another life experience. I mean, it's something to think about in terms of if you come from a large family, these are, you are learning how to negotiate, how to, how to navigate a, sometimes a bureaucracy, not quite the size of the Pentagon, but hey, you know, it can be a lot more ferocious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd say big families are certainly complex and I'm certainly fortunate to have been part of one because I don't think I could have one. But kudos to my parents for just the level of, of love and the level of work and stress and effort and you know providing that they put into all of us. It's really extraordinary. I was unlucky to have had such remarkable people to be raised by. Shout out but to after- Mr. and Mrs. Lenahan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were they were amazing for sure. For sure. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I was born into a team. And as you know, I was born into a complex organization. So I think he certainly learned some of those skills. And then also being the youngest. I mean, my oldest sibling is 18 years older than I was than I am. So there's a, a pretty broad age range there. Yes, absolutely. So Michelle, let's flashback really quickly to when you were in college. You went to the University of Pennsylvania and you got a BA in international relations and Spanish. And you alluded to your time in Spain. You spent a semester at the University of Sevilla in Spain. Did you know what you were going to do with this degree when you graduated? I've been interested in international relations, I would say, since my first overseas experience, which was actually at Tijuana when I was in elementary school. So throughout the course of my life, I've always been really interested and intrigued by people from other places and understanding, you know, those influences and those histories and what shaped them and, and why people are, you have different cultures and, and experiences. And then also within that trip to Tijuana, just seeing a child who literally had to sell chicle on the street versus the experience that I had growing up really struck me in a profound way. And so throughout my my youth, my development, I really always wanted to dive into international relations. I didn't understand what that meant and what the possibilities were through the more traditional route, just through education. I really thought that it meant working for the State Department. I wanted to do government service. I wanted to represent our country. I wanted to work in service towards our country internationally. And so I presume that that was State Department. And so when I was in college, I actually interned with the Department of State in the Office of Foreign Missions, which is basically an entity that services the diplomatic community. I was I did it in New York City. So I actually worked in service of people who were assigned to missions and consulates and some of the higher level UN personnel. 
And so I, I really thought that that was the path that, that it had to be through State Department. And then ultimately, I worked there actually for a year after college as well. But throughout the course of my career, what I realized is that there are so many different ways that you can do that. And really this, the scope of the United States government, how many different opportunities there are within it, and then how many different departments and agencies provide the opportunity to work internationally. And so I I came back to government through the presidential management fellowship after graduate school and found the office of secretary of defense. Actually, I found the office chief of naval operations where I initially worked and then ultimately office of the secretary of defense and recognized that I could, I could, play out that same desire for service internationally, just in a different organization that for me was a better fit. So ultimately, actually, I, I'm doing what I thought I would do or what I wanted to do in college, but I just found it through a somewhat circuitous route. Yeah. So your first job was working within the State Department in New York? It was, it was. I knew it, it's been so long ago and I have too many jobs on my, my CV. And so it's somewhat fallen off, but it was, I, I interned there in the summer and then I was offered a job as a contractor the following year. And so that's actually what I did before I went to South Africa. Got it. And then, okay, you've mentioned South Africa. Did you decide that you wanted to spend a little time overseas? Was that what inspired you to go take this job and teach in Johannesburg? Yes. I So I studied in Spain, as we mentioned previously. And while I was in Spain, I took a trip to Morocco. And that was my first touch with the African continent. And I was just immediately intrigued and it really captured me. And I wanted to understand it better and explore it. So I went back to school. I returned to school the following year at Penn and I dove into African studies. And then I really was intent on working in Africa. And so that to me was, was my drive and my goal. And so while I was in New York, I explored those possibilities. And that's how I found teaching at the American International School of Johannesburg. And it was really such an extraordinary time to be there since it was so soon after the end of apartheid. Nelson Mandela was the president. I was actually there for his transition from Mandela to Tapum Becky. I mean, which would be like in the United States living in a time of George Washington, in essence, stepping away. So it really was a remarkable experience. And then also to be in a place where history was so raw and forming, being in the, the midst of, of such a historic time really was so impactful, especially as they're grappling with so many still of the apartheid remnants and then finding their way forward. So even though our listeners don't have your CV in front of them, as I do, if I were to say, so what do you think Michelle did next? You might say (laughs) she moved into journalism because that's what she did. Was that what inspired you to get into journalism being in South Africa during such a historic time? The inspiration for journalism was really just that, again, intellectual curiosity and that just desire to constantly learn and expand and be in a dynamic environment and also have the ability to to serve because I really did think news and I still do think that news is such a critical it's, it's just so critical for Americans. It's our free press is, is a fundamental of our democracy. And so that to me was really intriguing. It was also the 2000 we were leading into the 2000 election, which to me was also really interesting, just being able to to be involved within the campaign from a news perspective and and dive into that election, which ended up being historic as well, since it was 
I don't know that we've ever had hanging chads before becoming such an issue. So, so actually that was quite, uh, that was quite a fascinating time and an impactful time to be in news too. And you did that for three years. You not only covered the 2000 election, you covered 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the space shuttle Columbia disaster. Why did you leave journalism and when did you decide to get your master's degree in public policy? You went to Harvard University to the Kennedy School of Government. News was was fascinating. It was three and a half years and it was jam-packed. I mean, as you noted, there were so many major news stories. Also, 9-11 occurred when I was in news, which I was in New York City working for ABC. And so you know, we were deep into coverage of that as well. So I really had such an extraordinary experience in news. And it also felt like a crucible as far as forming some really core skills that I've used to this day that I think are actually pretty fundamental to my ability to do policy. Such as? Um, well, communications, writing, ability to take on multiple issues, dive from one thing to the next, multitasking, stress, ability to work under pressure, to work quickly, to deliver, and then also to be accurate. Because as you know, in news, you, you cannot... I mean, you have to be perfect all the time. And then also you can't go to black. And so you have to find a way. So it also problem solving. If, if you're having issues and you've got to sort it out because at 6.30, World News Tonight is going on. Or you know, at a certain point, they're rolling the music and you've got to produce. So I think it just teaches you to, to make it happen in essence. And then also do that with a high level of integrity and also performance. But decision to shift into... Government was because I, I really respected and appreciated the role of news, but rather than covering issues, I wanted to dive in and I wanted to be part of it. So there's a, a quote by Theodore Roosevelt, the, the credit belongs to the man in the arena. And I wanted to get into that arena of policymaking and, and be on the inside trying to shape and, and affect decisions and, and also be part of the government, which I, I had this desire to serve. So is that when you went to grad school? Yeah. Yep. I transitioned to grad school following following ABC with the intention of going into government. But also, if it didn't work in government, I thought that by going to grad school, it would actually make me a better informed journalist if I if I chose to go back to ABC. Or not back to ABC, but if, if I chose to go back to, to journalism. And then where did the 5G dialysis in <laughs> Guyana fit into this narrative? Yeah, that's certainly an anomaly. But also such a, a wonderful experience. So I was in graduate school. I had worked in some small groups with a, a classmate of mine, Selwyn George. He was actually Guyanese and he was a, he's a Guyanese American. His family were business people, entrepreneurs in Guyana. And they recognized that there was a dire need for dialysis service. Their uncle Winley was six one and 85 pounds suffering from renal failure and there was no recourse for him in the country. So most people would have to either go overseas for treatment or just suffer through it in country. And so their family really wanted to start a dialysis center. Others had tried. It had never been done. People considered it impossible. Guyana is a, a very poor country with water issues and so forth. So making a complex procedure like dialysis happen is certainly a challenge. And so Selwyn, having worked with me in some groups, somehow thought that I'd be the one to make it happen. And so... He approached me and he asked if I would be willing to take on the initiative, explain his family's interest and basically create the dialysis center. So initially, I just I thought it was so outrageous because I had no background, no medical background or 
had never been to Guyana, although I, I had been intrigued and interested in Guyana because I had an interest in both Latin America and, and Africa. And so actually there's a, a large, the population of Guyana is basically half Indian and half black based on its uh, colonial history. And so to me, it was this intriguing country in the sense that it was English speaking in South America. It's actually more Caribbean. It's considered Caribbean rather than Latin American, obviously, because there's not a Latin element to it. But to me, that was intriguing anyway. So I'd, I'd probably noted that I found Guyana fascinating in a previous conversation. But anyway, so he thought I had the right skills or attitude or personality, whatever it might be, basically the mix in order to make it happen. I just saw this extraordinary opportunity to actually provide this really needed service to people but I didn't have it. And it wasn't at the time my mom was really sick. And so she, you know, we had the needs, but there's nothing that could be done for her. And here in Guyana, it was a matter of, they actually had the, the treatment and the, the dialysis procedures existed as far as a, a capability globally, but yet the people there didn't have the means. And so to me, that just seemed like such a injustice. And if I had the ability to try to help alleviate those people's concerns or those issues, then why not go for it? And the worst that could happen, I thought was that I just, I tried and I failed. And so I dove in. So Selwyn and I worked on a business plan, met with nephrologists, tried to get myself smart on on what dialysis was, met with uh, people who had tried, had some perspective, basically just tried to get myself smart, another aspect of, of what was required. And then Landed in country, worked with the the government in order to try to get their approval and on board, worked to find staff, get them trained, get in dialysis machines, products, so forth, and then also spread the word and try to educate as far as what dialysis was and what we were doing and do the whole public campaign as well. And so it was a really full force effort in a really short, aggressive timeline because I had to get back to grad school and Selman as well. And so we actually managed to open... So someone approached me and I started in probably May of 2004. And then we had our opening in October of 2004. And 16 years later, it's it's still functioning. The center, which is what I'm proudest of because we always want it to be sustainable. And then also other dialysis centers have actually been created because once it was proven that it could be done, others basically jumped on board, which is great because now there's actually an industry or, or a proper system to provide people with service that they need. Wow. Amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michelle. So after you graduated from the Kennedy School and after you set up the first dialysis center in Guyana, you got your first position in the Pentagon working in the office of the chief of naval operations as a presidential management fellow. It was a two-year appointment. How did you get that fellowship? I was really fortunate in the sense that I applied for the PMF, not recognizing how difficult it can be to get into the government and how the PMF is such an extraordinary vehicle to do so. So in graduate school, the PMF was was announced as a, a possibility or an opportunity for graduate students to pursue. At the time that I applied, you were eligible to to pursue the PMF if you were in your final year of, of graduate school, whether it be a master's or a JD or medical, it didn't matter what kind of school it was, just as long as you were basically in your last year. And so I applied and it entailed essays. And then if you're selected based on your essays, then you went to a full day of assessment and evaluation, and then you became a finalist. And then after a finalist, then you could have access to potential PMF opportunities across the U.S. government. 
And so I learned about it through pretty traditional routes in my graduate school, followed through the process, and then I was selected. And then once a PMF finalist, I applied to the Office of Chief of Naval Operations, who had a really great program. It's a two-year PMF, and the intention of the PMF is to try to bring in young talent and give them exposure at a higher level across the two years, and then ultimately bring them in as permanent civil servants across the U.S. government. And so the Navy PMF was designed the two-year program with four different rotations of about six months each so that you could see different parts of the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations or other elements of, of Navy. And then at the end of the year, two years convert into a, a full-time position. So within my PMF, I worked in several offices within the Office of Chief of Naval Operations, but I also worked in the Office of the Vice Chairman, who, who was a Navy Admiral. And then I was fortunate to go overseas. And I worked in the Navy Forces Europe and Africa, which is uh, the Navy component of European Command and African Command. And that's in Naples, Italy. Cool. Very cool. Well, I guess we should give a shout out to the person who introduced us, the amazing Anne Vaughn, who just returned. <laughs> From Naples, Italy, and the assignment that her husband had for the last couple of years. Right, right. I actually got to visit her. Um, oh, fantastic. Yes, yes. So two final questions for you, Michelle. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Sounds like you've had one unbelievable experience after another. And I asked this question because I believe in my core that failure, face planting, tripping, <laughs> screwing up, all of these experiences are unbelievably valuable. And the most important thing is just picking yourself up and to keep moving right. forward. And in that example, Michelle, if there was a lesson that you learned in the process, Sure. I would say my career has been a series of ups and downs. I mean, I think even within a role, you can have ups and downs where you have highs and lows. And you have to just, I would say perseverance is is the key is just to keep going and keep pursuing what you think is, is the right path for you. You know, I, even within the dialysis center, and that was ultimately such a, such a impactful part of my career and for me as an experience. But there were definitely times where it seemed as if it was doomed to fail and it wasn't going to happen. And I think that's when it's really important to have a good support system and network too that can also, you can draw on your own tools of resilience and so forth, but to have other people who, who encourage you and perhaps you, you're down a bit or you need a little bucking up, um, I think that's really critical is to have a strong support environment, uh, whether you find that within your personal life, who helps you professionally or, or otherwise. And then also just within career in the US. I, I definitely had a, a job where I signed up for one role and it quickly changed to something different than, than what was intended. I did my best to step up, but I think in many ways I, I fell short. And then also on that personal front, I think it's really important to to balance. I mean, oftentimes there are these work demands and it's, it's easy to throw yourself into it. But I think it's really important to have that self-care and have that counterbalance of a, a personal life and, and, and a healthy life outside of it. And so then you can somewhat measure what's going on on at work. So within that, I think I just really tried to take a strong perspective as far as what, what I needed to be doing versus what I was doing and then followed my heart again. I mean, I often get a, 
I guess, a, somewhat of a compulsion to do something. And so I just had a light bulb moment that said, this is the right path for you. And I shifted course and I tried something else. And ultimately that worked out. But I think it's important to note that in every experience you have, there's so much to be gained and learned from it. If you remain open and reflective, self-reflective for sure. And then also ask for feedback from others and try to do better in the next job that you have and just keep going. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that. Last question. If you could go back to the University of Pennsylvania and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Michelle, what advice would you give yourself? I would be probably more disciplined in my approach and, and trying to get more out of the experience. I mean, looking back, Penn, well, I've both my, I went to Penn and I went to Harvard, just really just have such extraordinary professors and such great resources and so much to offer the students who go there. And so looking back, I wish I'd probably at Penn cultivated relationships with a few professors and then maintain those throughout time and perhaps taken smaller classes so that I could have created those relationships in a, in a better way. But I do think the, that mentorship is, is so key, especially at that age, and to really dive into something substantively and tap into that knowledge that they bring and ideally maintain that relationship throughout your career, especially if those people are involved in an issue area that, that you continue to work on professionally. But I think the ability to establish close relationships with professors probably is something that, that would have enhanced or improved my experience and then my continuing experience. Got it. And I can certainly second that notion. I wish I had done the same. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. You have had such a fascinating career. And I, for one, feel incredibly fortunate to know that there are extraordinary individuals like yourself who are serving our country as civilians in the U.S. Pentagon. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. You're far too generous, but it's been such a treat to chat with you. And and I really want to encourage people to consider national security. It's such a fulfilling and fascinating career. There's so much to be done within it. And there's so many different elements. I always tell people to be really open. You much as I thought state was the only way to go if I wanted to do international relations and commerce, treasury. There's so many different departments and agencies out there and so many great opportunities. So I encourage all the super talented, passionate people to go out for it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.